Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody online. We're glad you could join us this morning. About a year ago, outside of Olympia, Washington, a 75-year-old man was driving his pickup truck down I-90. And he wasn't impaired, he wasn't under the influence, but he started to veer off the right side of the road. And understandably, he panicked a little bit, and so in his attempt to correct, he overcompensated. And he ended up veering across two lanes of traffic and slamming into the median on the left. And while he was there, that would freak anybody out, right? And so he panicked again, and he tried to right himself, but again, overcompensated. And he ended up rolling his truck two times off the right side of the road. Now, he was taken to a local hospital, and he was treated for his injuries, and, and he was fine. He, he went, went out a few days later. But it's just a good illustration of how overcompensating or overcorrecting one side or to the other is kind of a dangerous thing. It's a pretty common occurrence when it comes to motor vehicles. In fact, 5% of all uh, motor vehicle crashes are attributed directly to overcompensation. And 4% of all automotive deaths are attributed to overcorrecting. And that may seem like a small percentage, but when you're talking about 6 million incidents every year, that small percentage is, it ends up impacting a lot of people. And we can see the same sort of overcorrection, the same pendulum swing kind of tendency uh, in a lot of different aspects of, of the world. We can see it on the motor freeway. We can see it in cultures. I mean, you look at politics, for instance. In our nation's history, there was this establishment where we, we wanted to be free from the tyranny of England. And so we had this very, very loose federal government. It was a little too loose at times. And so there was this swing over to Hamilton and his era where there was a centralization of power. And then it was, there was too much power. And so we swung over to Thomas Jefferson with a little more freedom. And, and that pendulum swing just kind of has continued even up through today, really. We can see it on a personal level, too. And some of the decisions that we make, some of the reactions that we, we make to precarious situations, every once in a while shows up in a funny way in my life. I get the bug to like make healthy life choices. And so I think I'm going to start working out more, right? And I get this idea and I get psyched up. And on day one, I go way too hard on that workout routine. The pendulum swings way too far over here and I'm sore for several days. And during that time, I think my life was so much happier when I didn't work out. So the pendulum swings way over here and I'm done with this. And really somewhere in the middle is a much healthier place to be. The extremes, that's not where we want to live. And today, in our message, in our time together, we're going to be trying to find a good, healthy middle ground in this conversation that we've been having for several weeks now about justice. Today is part three in a series called Let Justice Roll. And we've been looking at justice, specifically social justice, from a biblical context. And, and what is it? What isn't it? What does God call us to? Today, we're going to be trying to find a healthy middle ground where we live justly and work for justice, but also maintain that faithfulness to who God is and what he calls us to. And to help us with that, we're going to be looking at the book of Amos. And we're going to start in chapter 4 today. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to chapter 4 of Amos. Eventually, we're going to get to chapter Five. If you don't have your Bible with you, always you can follow along on the screens to the side, or you can check out the FCC Mammoth app on your mobile device. Just tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find sermon notes with our passages pulled up, ready for you to engage with and get the most out of. So in this conversation, it's probably helpful if we identify first, what are these extremes? What are the far ends of the pendulum swing that we're trying to avoid? This morning, we're going to start off by talking about the one end of the spectrum that, that hears about social justice. 
And if you've been with us at all in this series, especially for part one, you've heard there are philosophical underpinnings that, that we just can't get behind in today's modern social justice movement. There are objectives and goals that the church really can't support. We hear that, and the tendency may be to say, you know what, I, I, social justice isn't really for me or my faith. And there's this tendency maybe just to say, well, can't we just like try to live an upright life and, and worship the Lord? Isn't that really all he asks of us? And we tend to find this end of the, the spectrum present, and this is generally speaking, more in established and conservative congregations and, and faith. And that's not to say it can't show up anywhere. It, it does. But we tend to find that more centralized in that kind of a church. And the answer to that question, can't we just gather and worship and, and try to live a good... The answer is no, actually. God, God does ask a little bit more of us. A lot more, actually. In fact... If we just want to try to gather and worship the Lord without taking justice seriously in our lives, what we're going to find is we're not actually worshiping the Lord. You see, when justice is lacking in our lives, our worship is lacking before God. And Amos makes that abundantly clear as we get into his words in Amos chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. It goes like this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall and you will be cast out toward Hermon, declares the Lord. <clears throat> so this, this prophecy, Amos is getting a little salty here. He's talking to this group of women in Mount Samaria, and he calls them cows of Bashan, which is about as insulting as it sounds. But this isn't really a dig at their stature or anything like that. Rather, this is targeting their overindulgence. Bashan was a very grassy, lush region in this part of the world, and it was known particularly for having well-fed cattle. Cattle that were contented, that were satisfied. And so when he calls these women cows of Bashan, he's targeting their overindulgence. These are well-kept ladies that want to be contented and satisfied in their lives. And they cry out to their husbands, bring us some more drinks, which is probably both literal and figurative. <clears throat> sort of a metaphor for this consuming attitude that they have. So how do these husbands satisfy their wives? Well, we read in the passage that they crush the needy and they oppress the poor. They go out and they extort money from the most vulnerable members of their society and they disenfranchise them in order to supply more and more for their harpy wives. That's not in the text. That's just me. And here's the, why I say that. These women don't care. They don't care where the money comes from. They don't care who suffers. They just want to be satisfied. The men, the women, everybody. They're all corrupt. Injustice has permeated the entire culture. And then God makes it very clear towards the end of that section, he's going to bring judgment. There's going to be a harsh rebuke against these people. It seems to be leading towards exile, which is something that befalls this northern kingdom of Israel around the year 5, I don't remember the exact year, 586, I think, B.C. But just because they were unjust and corrupt, it doesn't mean they didn't love to worship the Lord. They were very religious people, and we see that as we keep reading. Look at verse 4 of Amos. <clears throat> it says, Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. 
Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. So these Israelites, they were going to the cities of Bethel and Gilgal, and there were shrines to the Lord, very important shrines located at these cities. So they were going and making their pilgrimages to these places of worship. And they were bringing their sacrifices, and they were bringing their offerings, and they were making their tithes, which was all kind of the standard staples of how to worship your God at this time period in this part of the world. And they loved to do this. They loved going to worship. And yet, all of this is said with an air of rebuke about it. You probably picked up on that. And it's really interesting, Amos, he, uh, he phrases this almost like a call to worship. A call to worship was something that a priest would, would say and would announce to the crowds to prepare their hearts to draw near to the Lord. There's a good example of what this kind of looks like in Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. You can kind of hear how the priest is rousing people to gather and to lift up their praises to God. But when Amos announces this call to worship, he says, Go to Gilgal and sin. Go to Bethel, sin some more. He's saying that their worship is not genuine and it's not pleasing to God. In fact, it is sinful and it's actually distancing them from God. It's something that repels and repulses him. And we might ask why? They were doing all the right stuff. They were going to worship. They were bringing their offerings before the Lord. And the answer lies in those few passages that we started out reading this morning. Their lives were, were divorced from their faith and their worship. They worshiped a God of justice. They worshiped a God who looked at the oppressed and who looked at a group of slaves and liberated them from Egypt, who reached down and showed mercy and compassion to the downtrodden. And yet these people who worship that God are oppressing and crushing and disenfranchising the downtrodden amidst their own people. There is a disconnect here that renders their worship not only void, but repulsive before the Lord. And that sentiment is strong, but made incredibly clear when we keep reading in chapter 5 of Amos. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. This is Amos speaking on behalf of God. So this is God's word here. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. I hate. That's a strong phrase, right? Sometimes that bothers us because we think God, God doesn't hate anything. God is love, remember? And so I looked this word up in the Hebrew, and, and I'm glad I did, because when I looked, technically what the word means is, I hate. It means exactly what it says. There are things that God does hate. Things for which he has no love, things for which he has no patience or tolerance. And this is one of them. The hypocrisy of a people who have experienced mercy and compassion, who refuse to extend that mercy and compassion, and yet insist upon calling themselves his people. 
And I want to point out, there's a very, very powerful image being painted here in this passage. God says, your your assemblies are a stench to me. Typically, worship is spoken of as being a fragrant offering before the Lord. It's like, I like to picture fresh baked bread, that smell that just sort of wafts up in front of your face and is pleasing. But instead of that pleasing aroma, God says, your worship is an odious stench. He closes his nose. When he says, you make your offerings, I'll have no regard for them. In the Hebrew, the literal rendition of that is, I will not look at them. He closes his eyes. Your music, instead of being this joyful noise of his people singing, is this cacophonous racket. He closes his ears. God is closing himself off and distancing himself from these people. They're dancing and shouting and fervently bringing their worship before him, and yet he is repulsed. Because hypocrisy is an incredibly effective repellent. We've all experienced that in our own lives. I think we get that sentiment. We'll just use this past year as an example. COVID-19, it was, it was challenging for a number of reasons. There were a lot of restrictions and safety precautions and mandates put in place. And those were difficult for some people to, to accept, partially maybe because we're stubborn and we don't like being told what to do. That may be for some people here. But also, I mean, it interrupted our normal way of life. That's difficult to to accept and to get behind. But what made it really difficult for a number of people to accept these things was the blatant hypocrisy of those who made these mandates and yet saw themselves as above their requirements. Whether it was a public official who sent their family to another state amid travel restrictions, or public officials who insisted on getting their hair done, even though all public salons in their city had been closed, the hypocrisy just made that pill all the more difficult to swallow, whether you were in favor of the mandates or not, because hypocrisy is a powerful repellent. And what the Israelites are doing and worshiping a God of justice and yet leading lives that are completely void of justice is more repugnant than 10,000 mask mandates. They're bringing their worship before the Lord, but that's not what he asks for. He says, let justice roll like a mighty river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. The image is of a dry riverbed. We might imagine a creek bed. You know, when it's dry, there might be a little trickle of water that runs through the middle, but after it's sat and baked in the sun, it's like concrete. You you can't even scrape dust off the top of it. It's so dry and hard. And yet, in Israel, there would come a rainy season where the rains would come and those creeks, those wadis, they would flood and there'd be this torrent of water that just surged through these riverbeds and flooded over the countryside. And God is saying, let justice and let righteousness and mercy and compassion flood your land like a river. That's what he asks for. And it's a message that we need to hear because when we hear today's discussions about justice and particularly this woke social justice movement that does not align with the church's priorities, there's a temptation for the pendulum to swing so far over and to overcorrect and say, social justice, that's, that's not what my faith is about. I'm just going to worship the Lord and I'm going to try to live an upright life. That is an overcorrection that ignores God's call to his people, people who have experienced the tenderness and the mercy and the compassion of the gospel. 
People who were outsiders who were brought inside. People who were estranged and crushed by our sin, who were forgiven and brought into the very family of God and sat at the table and said, you are my children. Church, justice is not an option for us. To live justly, to work justice in our relationships, to seek justice in our communities. Justice that acknowledges the God-given value of every people, regardless of any descriptive factor about them, because God made them and Jesus died for them. That is non-negotiable. And to simply say, I want to gather and worship without a concern for just living in our lives, we're not really worshiping the Lord. We're offering empty sacrifices just like Israel. Worship is not about what happens on Sunday morning so much as the other six and a half days a week. What happens here is an overflow of every other day of our lives. We're going to talk about that before we end our time together this morning. Just for now, this is the end of the spectrum that we cannot swing to. It's an overcorrection, and it'll end in a crash. The other end of the spectrum is something we need to be aware of as well, though. Because there is a tendency for some, and we see this more in progressive circles, but really it shows up in a lot of places, your generalizations. It's this understanding that God does call for justice in this world. And people hear this and they say, yes, we need to seek justice in society. And we become so hungry to see justice and to see social change that we act and move maybe more according to cultural understandings and cultural voices more than the biblical voice of God. And in this instance, if we risk not really worshiping God on this end of the spectrum, we risk not really worshiping God on this end of the spectrum, but rather an idol that is shaped according to our cultural norms and conveniences. You see, when our worship of the Lord is compromised, what we're going to find is that our justice will be compromised as well. And that also is a danger that we must avoid. Israel, again, great example of this. Let's keep reading in Amos 5 and see what else God has to say to them. This is verse 25, and and I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, by the way, and we'll talk about why that is in just a second. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sekuth, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you in exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So if you're reading from a, a New International Version, an NIV version, you probably notice this is a little different, reads a little differently, and there is a kind of an involved linguistic reason for that. I'll gladly talk about it if you just find me after the service. But the short of it is this. This is a more difficult reading, which is usually more accurate and more true to the text. So it's a more literal translation as well. And it also reveals a little more clearly what specifically is happening in Israel. You see, Sekuth was a a Mesopotamian star god. And Kiyun is a name that refers to another star god that's oftentimes synonymous with Saturn. So while the Israelites were very fervent in their worship of the Lord, he just wasn't the only god they were worshiping. They had a lot of gods that they were worshiping in the northern kingdom of Israel. Despite the fact that God explicitly said, you shall have no other gods before me. And even more specifically, Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 19, God says, don't worship the stars or the astral bodies. They did that exact thing. And we might ask the question, why would they be so brazen 
to plunge headfirst into something that is so obviously contrary to who God is and what he's asked of us. But the reality is their compromised understanding of God started long before this. If you read the history of the northern kingdom of Israel and how it all started and unfolded, we understand that God said to his people, you'll have a house for me, a place of worship in Jerusalem. That's the place I chose. And the people in the north, they were aware of this. They just didn't care. They built a rival temple in the city of Bethel. You'll also be familiar with the story of Moses at Mount Sinai where Moses goes up and he's talking with God. And meanwhile, all the people, they make an idol out of a golden calf. We've heard that story before. And then the commandments come down and God says, you'll have no graven images. And everybody goes, oops, my bad. That's That's my version. That's a story everybody was familiar with. And the Israelites were familiar with this. They just didn't care. So they made an idol for themselves, a representation of God, a graven image, and they put it at the city of Bethel. And of all things, they chose another golden calf. I, I don't get it either. I don't know why you'd make that choice. But they heard what God said. They just didn't care. Time and time again, what we find is that these Israelites worship God. They hear what he says. They know his word. And then they ignore it and do what they want anyway. And when your theology and your understanding of God is of somebody who speaks, but whose words are pretty negligible, you're not really worshiping the God of the Bible to begin with. You're worshiping a God of convenient cultural convictions, something that's very easy to get behind and something that's very comfortable because he happens to believe all the same things that we in our culture believe. How fortunate are we, right? We're not really worshiping the Lord. That was the danger that the Israelites fell into time and time again. And here's the other thing. If you're not willing to listen to who God is and what he says about himself, is it really that surprising that they ignored everything he had to say about other people and how to treat them and live justly? I mean, if we aren't willing to listen to what God says and reveals about how to worship him, why would his instructions for life and interactions matter? When our worship of the Lord is compromised, our justice is going to be compromised as well. And this is something that we also need to hear in our world today because there are a lot of calls to be just in the name of God. And the kind of justice that's being advocated for is not necessarily something that aligns with what he has spoken or revealed to his people. We use, for example, there was a, 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 and I use this word kind of loosely, a pastor uh, named Brandon Robertson who made a TikTok video several months ago, went viral. Millions of people saw it. Uh, And in that video, it gained so much traction because he talked about the racist sin of Jesus and how Jesus repented of his racism. Yeah, some of you are like, wait a minute, I missed that part. You didn't. Okay. But he goes to a story in Mark chapter 7 where Jesus interacts with a woman of a different ethnic background. She's Syrophoenician. And in that interaction, she comes to Jesus. She says, my daughter is possessed. Will you heal her? And Jesus says, first let the children eat all that they want. It's not right to take the bread from the children's table and give it to the dogs. And that explanation is Jesus explaining the nature of his ministry. The Jews were the chosen people of God. They were his covenant people. He was sent to Israel. That's where his ministry and his focus was. Later down the road, that door would be open to absolutely everybody without restriction. But for that time, that was his focus. That's it. But Robertson takes that last part about don't give the food to the dog. And he says, Jesus used a racial slur for this woman. 
which isn't the case. That word in Hebrew or Greek is, isn't actually used as a slur against people. And racism was a concept that didn't exist until race was invented several hundred thousands years, well, about a thousand plus years later. It's a sociological construct. Ethnicity was a thing, but race is a different thing. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Well, the story continues. The woman says, well, don't the dogs even eat the crumbs that fall off the children's table? And at this, Jesus is impressed with her faith. That's the word Mark uses. And he heals her daughter. And when Brandon hears the story, he says, well, the woman spoke truth to power, which is a very woke phrase. And Jesus, recognizing his own racism, repents of his sin and does right by her. And then he encourages his listeners. He says, and we can be like the woman, speaking truth to power, being advocates, and like Jesus, recognizing the racism inherent in our own lives and repenting of it. It is a, a divine call to a woke ideology that our society right now is so enamored with. The problem is it completely undermines the gospel and who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is guilty of any sin, let alone racism, then his death on the cross doesn't mean squat. And we're all still condemned. And the gospel is void and we're all wasting our time. That's not the way that the New Testament talks about Jesus. That's not the way that the Messiah was spoken of in the days leading up to it through the prophets. This is not Jesus, the biblical Jesus, that Brandon and those in his vein are following. This is ideologies of today, baptized in biblical language. It's a Jesus of convenience and cultural affirmation. And when our worship of the Lord is compromised like that, is it so surprising that our justice would take forms that don't align with who God is and what he's revealed? There are many, many social justice issues today that our culture rallies around. And many in the church say we must take active participation in, even though they don't reflect the biblical voice of God. Our culture rallies against the injustice of heteronormativity. The idea that that there are men and women and that marriage is between one man and one woman. This is an injustice. And yet when I look at scripture, what I see is that people are always spoken of in either man or woman. And that anytime marriage is spoken of or anytime sex in a positive light is spoken of, it's always one man, one woman. There's, there's not even a trajectory that lead us to maybe assume something else might be possible. It's incredibly consistent. When God says something, he's revealing to us his intentions. Our culture rallies against the oppressive injustices and the patriarchal wrongs that strip women of their right, their God-given right for an abortion. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I am a man. I, I, I don't understand a lot about childbirth. I don't understand firsthand a lot of the implications of how that carries through in your life and, and what that does. But I like to think I understand what God means in Psalm 139 when he says, he knit me together in my mother's womb. He laid before him or ordained all my days in his book before even one of them came to pass. And there seems to be intention and value and purpose and recognition of life long before that individual exits the womb. Our culture rallies against a lot of other causes, student loan debt. And I'll be the first to say, student loan system in our country, it could use some work, there are some problems. 
But at the end of the day, when you borrow money, the expectation is that you pay it back. Paul says in the book of Romans, let there be no outstanding debt between you except the ongoing debt to love one another. We could talk about the social justice issues of, of climate change, the social justice issues, name it, everything's a justice issue today. The question that we have to ask ourselves when our culture demands that we take a stand in God's name is what, what does God actually say about this stuff? Has he spoken? Because as we learn in our passage from Amos, God speaks and what he says he means. He cares whether or not his people listen to his words. At the very end of verse 27, that implication is given by the title by which God is called. In the ESV, it was the God of hosts. In the NIV, it's the Lord Almighty. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh Sabaoth. And literally, it's a title that means the God of the heavenly armies. It's a title that signifies his divine sovereignty and sole rule over everything. Sometimes he sends those heavenly armies to fight for his people alongside of them. We read instances of that in the Old Testament. Sometimes, as in the book of Amos, he sends those heavenly armies in judgment against his people because they did not listen to his word and they were unfaithful to their covenant. It's his right to do because he's the God of the heavenly armies. There is objective reality. There is objective truth. There is objective justice. And we don't get to define that because we are not the church of the heavenly armies. We are not the Lord of the heavenly armies. He is, and he alone is his sovereign right to make those distinctions and decrees. Our job is to hear the word of the Lord and in the name of justice, follow them with compassion and truth. The work of social justice today is not to reshape God to fit our cultural values and norms. The work of social justice is in compassion and mercy to reshape this world to fit God's sense of justice and truth. Because in that, we taste the good intentions that he's always had. When our worship of the Lord is compromised, though, when we are following an idol of cultural convenience, our practice of justice will be compromised as well. There are two ends of the spectrum. Both of them will lead us to a crash. But if we can manage to hold them each, one in each hand, what we will find is that true worship and true justice flow out of one another. There's this beautiful entanglement between them. They support one another. They produce one another. They're most effective when practiced together. And we get a sense of this when we look at another passage. This one's in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. I want to share it with you, and then we're going to break it down. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So like I said, let's just break this passage down a little bit. It says, therefore, in light of God's mercy, he's talking about the gospel there. It's this, this promise that even though we were sinful, even though we, we have been unjust, even though our relationships with people were not as they should have been, well, maybe we were oppressive in a genuine sense. Maybe we, we overlooked somebody in need. Maybe we were harsh or cruel towards somebody. Maybe the sin in our life overwhelmed us and defined us. Whatever the case, God saw us in our great need, and he took pity and had mercy. 
And he sent his son into this world. And all of that iniquity and all of that injustice and all of that wrongdoing was paid for in his own flesh as he died on a cross. And the innocence, the sinless innocence of Jesus in exchange was given to us so that on our day when we stand before God, we don't stand before him with a ledger full of red ink. We stand before him innocent and clean and pure and holy and new, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. That is God's merciful gift to us. That's the gospel. In light of that and who God is and what he's done for us, the response as we read It's to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing before God, because that's our true and proper worship. And the image of a living sacrifice is a really interesting picture. Because typically when you make a sacrifice, like you kill it and give it over, or you just completely hand something over and you're done with it, it's not yours anymore. Like you think of a a sacrifice bunt in baseball, like the batter gets up, bunts and fully expects to get out at first base. He's giving himself up, handing himself over so that the base runner can advance and gain scoring position. And when he gets out, he doesn't like get to hang around first base a little bit and stay there and wait for the next batter to come. He's done. He's out. He goes and sits down. It's over. But being a living sacrifice is a little different. Because we give ourselves completely over to God in response to this merciful gift he's given us. But we don't like disappear or go sit in the dugout or go to heaven immediately. We, we keep around, like hanging out. We're here for a while and we live each and every day. And that means each and every day is an offering up to him. It's an ongoing act of worship. And you can start to see then how worship is not just what we do in this room. It's what happens the other six and a half days a week as well. Because every single day, our lives are lived as worship for him. Do you see where justice might come into play there? How our relationships with one another, how we treat one another, how we interact with the oppressed, with the downtrodden, with the least of these, how that would matter to God, how that is an act of worship before him our conduct and our relationships with each other and in our community, how we respond to that is an act of worship. And that worship then, it protects our sense of justice to keep it from becoming something that is contrary to God. And we get that sense as we keep reading. Do not be transformed, I'm sorry, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't let this world inform you of who you are or who other people are or how to think or view what's happening around you, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allow the worship of God to shape you, whether that be song or prayer or more specifically and beneficially, his own word. Take in, drink in who he is. Drink in his call for righteous living. Let that shape and change inform your mind. And that's what will allow us to practice a biblically sound kind of social justice that respects people and honors people and loves people while still remaining true to what God has called us to. It's kind of that old expression, garbage in, garbage out, right? It's very true. Every once in a while, my wife, she gets on a health kick too. And that means I eat a lot of stuff that I don't want to eat. But it's good for me. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I feel better. I sleep better. I'm more productive and more energetic because when you put good stuff in, good stuff comes out. But then there's always McDonald's. I love McDonald's, but it's garbage. It's terrible for us, right? 
And when I eat it, I probably feel the same way that a lot of you feel. I feel bloated. I feel lethargic. I don't have energy. I'm not very productive because when you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. And the same is true with our minds. If we spend every single day enamored and focused and filled with what the world has to say to us about how to think and what the world has to say about justice and what the world has to say about how to live in this world and what the world says we ought to be doing and the ideologies of this place, when we continually pour that in, how do you think your mind is going to be shaped? Is it going to be something that is in line with who God is or is it going to reflect what we've been taking into our lives? It's going to be that, garbage in, garbage out. But through the worship of the Lord, taking that in, through reading his word, by being shaped, it does the same thing. Our minds and our opinions, our understandings, our ideologies are shaped by who he is and his sense of justice, a biblical kind of social justice. You see, it's not an either-or situation, worship and justice. It's both and. We need both of them in our lives. If we veer too much to this side and we simply want to worship and we have no concern for justice, we're not really worshiping. If we veer too much to this side and we're so concerned with justice that we ignore what God has said and called us to, we're not really worshiping the Lord. But in the middle, what we find, one in each hand, is that they inform one another to where we can honor the dignity that God has created every single person with, regardless of any descriptive factor, whether they're gay, straight, black, white, rich, poor, whatever. God made them, and they matter enough that Jesus died to save them. That's all we need to know. And yet at the same time, we can hold true to what God says and not call for us to reorganize our entire society around something that God says should not be. We can be both. There is middle ground. If we want to be people who reflect the mercy and the compassion and the consideration that we've been shown, showing it to those around us in our immediate relationships and in our community, that's a biblical sense of social justice that is worshipful and honoring to God. And that's the kind of of safeguard, healthy middle ground that keeps us going straight on this path, this journey of social justice without crashing from one side to the other. So here's the challenge for this week. Your next step, go and worship the Lord this week. And we're going to do that in just a second through some song. But Monday, get up and go worship the Lord. Drink in his word and then go do what you read. As you interact with people of different economic situations from yourself, People of different political leanings from yourself, different cultural backgrounds from yourself, people of different walks of life, Honor the dignity that God has created them with. If they're hurting, lend a hand. If they're downtrodden, lift them up. If they need encouragement, encourage them. If they're in need, extend generosity. And then Tuesday, wake up and go worship the Lord by drinking in his word and then doing what he says. Looking out for the oppressed, looking out for the overlooked, seeing those whom other people will not see. Wednesday through Saturday, go and worship the Lord. Live justly. Let it roll like a river and let righteousness be an ever-flowing stream in your life as you treat people with the dignity and the value that God has created them with. In short, just treat people like people. Love them. Don't bend over backwards to accommodate this world, but love people, even if they disagree with you, if they're different from you, even if they oppose your values, love them because Jesus still died for them. That's the beginning of justice in our communities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your compassion. We thank you that you saw us 
Uh, even though we were lost and wandering like sheep over a hill, you sought us, you pursued us, you brought us home. You washed us clean from our sins. You showed us compassion, you gave us life. And Lord, we pray that that same compassion would be present in our hearts as we see those in this world who are lost. Whether they're spiritually lost and seeking you, whether they are overlooked because of some factor in their life, where they are disenfranchised, oppressed, crushed, between a rock and a hard place, Father, let us see people and let us acknowledge the value that everybody has, not just in word, but in action and relationship. Let us extend mercy and compassion and understanding and generosity. But let us also stand firm on what you have made clear, standing for truth, standing for your will, pursuing that good, perfect, pleasing will. And let us hold both justice and worship in our hands and, and come before you as best we can, honoring you with both. Because in this you are pleased. And in this you call your church to live and to act and to move. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.